Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. And as usual, we're talking about the keys to the Kingdom. So how how do you get the keys to the Kingdom? I mean, supposedly, or at least metaphorically, we imagine that uh, Peter's got the keys. (laughs) So he's going to let people in and not let people in based on what Peter wants. But of course, that's not the case at all. The keys to the kingdom of heaven are the uh, what you do on earth uh, is bound in heaven, and what you do, uh, what you don't do on earth is also, <laughs> or what you undo on earth is bound in heaven. So uh, that that goes for everybody. That is the key to the kingdom of heaven. Now, does that mean that you're saved by what you do? No, that doesn't mean that you're saved by what you do. But what you do tells us whether or not you're saved. And we may not be a good interpreter of what you do and what you don't do. But God knows. He knows. He judges you by your works. Because your your works lets us know whether you really believe or not. If you love Christ, you will keep his commandments. You will just naturally do it. It won't be hard. <laughs> at least as hard as you think it is to keep the commandments if you really love Christ. If you just want to think you love Christ, it's going to be really hard to keep the commandments. You're going to constantly be breaking the commandments. And so you'll, if you're going to be breaking the commandments, but you want to think you're saved, you're going to need ministers that tell you that you're saved because of what you think. They're going to tell you that if you think you're saved, you're saved. (laughs) I mean, that's crazy. But that's what they do. They tell you, if you say you believe in Jesus, you're saved. Except for the fact that what you say is not just what comes out of your mouth, but also what you do. When they, you see that word say, when you see that, you know, what you, what you're telling me, it, it includes you know, hand gestures, it includes body language, it includes what you do. What you do tells me as much as what actually comes out of your mouth. So when they say, if you profess Christ, that means with your whole mind, body, and soul. You can't be telling me that you that you love uh, somebody while you're beating them to death. While, you, while you're taking a bite out of them. While you're doing the opposite of what, you know, that th- that is good for them. You're doing evil to them, but you say you love them. You know, y- your actions are speaking louder than your words. <laughs> See, it's that simple. But people have, they actually, their brain just kind of glosses over and it says, I love Jesus. And they get all emotional about it. And so therefore, we're supposed to believe that they're saved. 
I had this emotional experience on April 23, 1947, <laughs> and I was saved. Now, the Holy Spirit is not an emotional event. It's not a secretion of hormones in your body that give you a feeling of euphoria. That's not a spiritual experience. That's a chemical experience and an emotional experience. So how do we measure the truth? How do we measure whether or not we are saved? Well, you know, by their fruits you will know them. How many how many times does he tell us that? He's telling us over and over again that by their fruits you will know them. So what is the fruits of the modern church? Well, 40,000 different denominations. Some of them which are absolutely in opposition to each other. A complete division amongst the Christian community so that they're not all one body. Uh, all kinds of theologies and doctrines that are actually contrary to Christ. I mean, you look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees said they believed in Moses, but Jesus said, no, if you knew Moses, you would know me. If you love Moses, you would love me. That It's that simple. But they didn't love Jesus, so they didn't love Moses. They loved an image of Moses which they had created in their own minds. And they had lots of ministers that helped them do this. And they, are all, they were all workers of iniquity. And it's that same truth that is playing out today in the modern church. So how do we measure what the modern church is and what the modern church is not? What, what the true church is, which the modern church actually is not. Now, and we've written all kinds of articles and people, you know, somebody wrote uh, in an email the other day and I still haven't got a clear explanation out of him as to what the heck was he talking about. <laughs> he just, you know, we, we sent out a notice letting you know we're, we're starting a study group uh, where everybody can call in and they can ask questions and it's it's working out pretty good. The first first day we were a little overwhelmed by the number of people who showed up. But anybody can ask questions. Uh, it's really good to ask your questions to your, through your local minister, and then we'll jot them down, and we'll put some of those questions up on the page, pages that we're studying, and we're going through the free church report, and we do that every Tuesday. And there'll probably be some Tuesdays where we skip it, but uh, it's a, a good habit to keep showing up and and learning. But we make a recording of the call, and I go through and edit the call so we get, you know, the mechanical glitches out and all those kinds of things that, so that it, it records rather smoothly because I'm re recording here in this studio, and but the calls are not recorded. They're recorded separately, and then we splice that sound of their recordings in. So all that takes a little bit of time. And then I, I put it on the page that has the material that we reviewed. And I sent that announcement out to the network. And uh, and I got this kind of cryptic message back from somebody in the Midwest. Uh, making reference to all sorts of things like uh, avoid steering God's truth. Well, you know, I don't know. What, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Avoiding steering God's truth. 
And even Moses was stumbled by the threshold of the promised land. Well, Moses exercised authority. He struck the rock to get the waters to flow. And once you understand all the metaphors in the Hebrew language, that's really not a complicated statement, but most people don't understand it. He's talking about a a stumbling block and a snare, however uh, well-intentioned. Self-glorification, he makes a reference to. What are we talking about? We just sent out a notice of where the recording was (laughs) and a notice as to what the next week's topic is. And he goes on and on. And and I understand why people do this. Uh, You know, people are... They they are so vain that they fill their mind with accusations of others. There's you know they they can't even hear others talking to them and trying to help them. They they just put up a wall right away because you can't tell them hardly anything or maybe you can't tell them anything because they're all so prejudgmental. But they've they just close their minds. And then, in order to keep them closed, they have to kind of send out all this kind of ad hominem approach to life where they're finding criticisms without even knowing what they're criticizing. And they're stuck in that. And, of course, if as many as we love, we also rebuke. And so, you know, I didn't start out rebuking him. I started asking questions like, what do you mean? And he didn't answer. And uh, and then he responds, you know, uh, with the... you know, some sort of response, but again, it's an accusatory response rather than answering the question, like, what do you mean? Say specifically what you mean. But they're vague accusations, so that there's really nothing to even argue about. Is like, uh, you know, because you're not really having a conversation with the individual. You know, they're, they're, they have a kind of a, uh, a way of avoiding the actual topic of what they're discussing or, or uh, their reactions. And they go off on these tangents, constantly deflecting off in these different directions rather than addressing what... They won't even mention what the actual specific issue is in relationship to what was said. So they're, they're not even... They, they, you can't even debate them. You can't get them to focus on the actual topic of discussion. They ha- they're always deflecting, going this way and that way. There, There's all kinds of different ways in which people avoid the truth. Uh, I mean, you, you look out in the world today, we have this, people talk about liberals, snowflakes, millennialists, and they got all these labels out there. But there is an element of the world that doesn't want to see some very basic truths. And because of that, and the original truth, truth is absolutely dependent upon seeing yourself as you really are. And people don't want to see themselves as they really are. And so they're always looking out at you know, that critical eye, pointing out, oh, this person's doing wrong, this person's doing wrong, this person's not doing this right, and... And they're never looking at themselves. They're never looking at the big picture either. They they can't see the big picture because they have all these blind spots about themselves. And so when you 
the greatest revelations come when you begin to look at yourself and your relationship to the rest of the world. But we're always trying, you know, it's like trying to learn to swim wearing three or four different life vests at the same time. <laughs> the life vests get in the way of swimming. They keep you afloat, but they keep you from learning to swim. Because you never really look at yourself in the midst of things. And because you have these blind spots that you won't look at certain elements of your own nature... You won't see elements of the world either because those elements that are in you, you block out of the world. And so you'll have extremely rich Hollywood people complaining about the government not giving more money to help the poor. But they themselves live in three or four different mansions, have millions and millions of dollars, and don't always treat their own help that well. <laughs> So, <laughs> but they got a lot to say about the rest of the world and what everybody else should be giving, you know, uh, forcing them to give to create their social estate. You know, the the wealthy rich are often extremely uh, selfish and socialist in their approach to things. You know, like you have a President Trump uh, now who has uh, always been wealthy, always had money, and ridiculous amounts of money. He actually is an amazingly charitable individual. He gives an awful lot of money away. He's, you know, I actually know of people who work for him, <laughs> and they have nothing but praise for the way he and his whole family treats the people that work for him. Now, there's a lot of people that work for him. I'm sure you can find some that are disgruntled. But they say that, you know, he knows you by first name basis. They talk to you like you're a real person. Uh, they're always polite. And and that's not what you hear from a lot of other people. <laughs> I don't know if I could withstand the temptation of growing up with as much wealth as he did without being warped by that wealth. But... Uh, that's that's an interesting observation from people who we know firsthand. You know, they're not faking it. They're, 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 this is what they see. We're often changed by the reality of our life and the way we're brought up. But what we are willing to see about ourselves is the key that's going to make the difference whether we're rich or poor or have to work hard or don't have to work at all or whatever. Uh, and being willing to see that, willing to see what we are guilty of, our failings, our foolishness, that is a key to the kingdom of heaven because it's opening our eyes to see what we have done wrong, what we have been a part of that is wrong, what we have failed to be a part of that is right, or what we might call righteous. We have to be willing to look at that. So, we had a few other questions when I, I put out a note last night, uh, and I got up early this morning and took a look, and oh my gosh, I have all kinds of questions in here, some privately, uh, some through the network. 
and uh, and one of them was a question about eternal life, and uh, I think I have that question here somewhere. <laughs> anyway, uh, I could probably read it to you, and we'll see what uh, it, this was from somebody in New York, and uh, he was uh, he says and. Uh, when he was gone forth into the way, they, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And then he asked, the individual asked, Why does it seem in some passages that eternal life is reserved for those who become ministers? Well, it it really doesn't if we look at everything in, in context and he gives Mark ten thirty and Luke ten twenty five and and Luke eighteen eighteen and and then even in John four thirty six where it says and he that uh, reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And, and of course, that that's a, almost a parable there where he's describing a situation and trying to refer to certain things. Receiveth wages, gathers the fruit unto life eternal. And I have a... a a page already up on eternal life and it talks about this this reference to eternal life and we have this word eternal that we're translating from uh ionios it can mean eternal uh in some some of the verses that we see it 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 means more like ages ages upon ages well it's not eternity upon eternity but it's a long period of time in relationship to your own life and so, basically, I come down. You can read the article. Just look up Eternal Life on the a website. I put a lot more live links into it to other articles so that you can put these things in context. And actually, some of those links will carry you over to what other uh, guys who create uh, concordances, uh, how they look at the word. And I think the key word is not so much eternal but life, because they also talk about eternal damnation and destruction and eternal fires and everything. So, we're eternal creatures of some sort, you know, the immortality of the soul. Uh, but this guy is asking about eternal life, and specifically his eternal life. How can he guarantee this continuation of life, as opposed to the opposite of life, which is destruction? In some cases, it sounds like Jesus says that they need to become ministers of the church. Well, in some cases, it is. We are all ministers one to another to love your neighbor as yourself. To care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself is a ministry that we all must bear. It is part of Righteousness is not just not breaking the Ten Commandments. Righteousness is also a positive action for good in the world. I mean, you take care of your children, you take care of your wife, you take care of your husband. That's loving those that love you. 
But what grace have you if you only love those who love you? You have to love others. You have to care about others. If you're coming in Christ's name, you're coming that the whole world might be saved. Well, what can you do about the whole world? Well, you have to love your neighbor, both near and far, as much as yourself. You must cast your bread not only upon your family, but upon the waters of Water is almost always a metaphor for the people. And not just your people, your little local congregation, but to people out there in the world with nothing but hope that it might come back to you. So this this whole idea of charity, somebody was posted something and I didn't even bother answering it uh, on uh, one of the Facebook groups that I'm on and It talks about Republicans want to save the unborn, but then they don't mind letting them starve to death once they're alive or something to that effect. Well, it isn't the job of government to feed everybody. It's the job of the people to feed everybody. Now, you can go to men who exercise authority and say, you feed everybody and you just tax the rich. And of course... Take a bite out of the rich so you can feed everybody. And uh, unfortunately, you're setting the snare that's going to trap you. Because you're going to get devoured because you thought it was okay to bite others. Which, of course, the New Testament tells you, be careful, you do not bite one another. doesn't say, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, unless he's rich. It just says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. (laughs) Period. And so you can't just be saying, well, let's bite the rich to feed the poor. Well, no, you feed the poor. You start caring about one another. And that's one of the purposes of the church is to care about other people, to help other people in a way that strengthens them. And, you know, doesn't just give them a fish, but teaches them how to fish. You know, it doesn't just give them fruits and vegetables, but teaches them how to grow fruits and vegetables, obtain fruits and vegetables for themselves. So that they too can become independent, hard-working individuals in the kingdom of God. And those that want to remain slothful and not work, they should not eat. They should fast until they repent. (laughs) That's just the way it is. Uh, The poor you will have with you always. Somebody else had written that, uh, you know, Christians should be eliminating poverty in the world. Well, according to Christ the poor you will have with you always. You're not going to eliminate poverty. It's just not going to happen. You are to be compassionate and charitable, but you have to do it in a certain way. But what we're really going to talk about is reeds. And uh, and we're going to tie all these different topics together and uh, explain to you what that means when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom.
welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So I said we were going to talk about a read. Uh, well, sometimes I feel like a lone read <laughs> in the desert uh, because uh, there are a few people that are beginning to see some of the things that we're talking about. But uh, that's what John the Baptist was equated with sometimes is being a lone reed uh, quivering in the desert, uh, you know, uh, out there and. And if you read Isaiah and a lot of other places in the Bible, they talk about reeds. Um, you know, uh, it, Revelation mentions it in Revelations 11.1, 1, but it's also mentioned in, uh, I think, Revelations 15. Uh, 21, 15, uh, verse 15, uh, where it talks about uh, measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it. Uh, so this idea of a reed uh, or rod even um, to measure things with was uh, something that comes back from ancient times uh, that they would have something that they would use as a measuring device. Now we use Stanley tapes to measure distances, etc. But uh, they... They used to use these, and, and the word became figurative of a measuring device. And they they talk uh, even in, um, in in our page on William Penn, uh, which is actually quoting Isaiah. It talks about uh, we will not break the bruised reed, and that's coming again from Isaiah that talks about uh, uh, the not breaking the bruised reed in Isaiah 42 verse 3 uh, where it talks about a bruised reed shall not be broken and uh, the smoking flax shall not be quenched. So what what are they talking about? What And, and flax uh, is what you make linen out of. And of course you were supposed to make the underwear of the Levites out of linen. So what all these things are metaphors and and sometimes idioms of the language, and you can study that and begin to understand what they're talking about. Uh, and uh, I was trying to think of a few other. Uh, actually, in Isaiah 36, we also see the staff of this broken reed on Egypt. Uh, it talks about that. So. But the point is, is the reed is this measuring device. And in uh, Revelations 1 and 11.1, uh, we mention that reed, quote, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple. So this idea of measuring the temple. Now, how do we know that we were just talking earlier about the fact that uh, how do we know we have faith? Well, what's the measuring reed, the rod that we use to measure whether or not you have faith? How many times you tell me you have faith? Uh, how emotional you were when you thought you had faith? <laughs> and you, you thought you were saved? Uh, is that how you measure? What What do you measure it with? Well, James tells you, Paul tells you, by your works, by the fruit of who you are, by what you do, 
That's how we know whether you have faith or not. Now, we can be deceived because you can do a lot of things and it seems really good. But Jesus says to a lot of people who have been doing all kinds of great things, and he talks about many people, get you from me, I know you not, that you are actually workers of iniquity. But they have all kinds of good works. They probably had charitable groups that were out there passing out food and and clothes and doing all kinds of nice things to people because, I mean, it's easy to find poor people. Go down to Africa or South America and you find all kinds of poor people and you can go there and help them and feel real good because you went there and helped. But do you really know Christ? Are you really saved? You you give a good appearance, but what's in your heart and in your mind. So it's a lot of times what you don't do that tells us who you are and if your faith is real or not. It's not necessarily what you do. It's what you don't do. Because Jesus Jesus makes it clear it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do it the will of the Father. So obviously breaking the commandments is not doing the will of the Father, but Doing the will of the Father is actually an action word talking about what you're actually doing. And what you're actually doing becomes the fruit of the Spirit that dwelleth in you. And so, what is it that you should be doing? What is it that the church should be doing to give us some insight? And uh, I believe that the person who asked the the question, uh, who I believe is a minister... Uh, was uh, uh, asking it because he's been looking at the mission statement of the church. And we have it in several places. It's on the main website. Uh, There's a whole page there that talks about a mission statement. But it actually even talks about what a mission statement is. A mission statement is, is your verbalization or a written document that is a brief summary of the mission of the organization that you belong to, that you are a part of. And so the mission of the church would require you to understand that. You have to understand what the church is. And most of the time where you see that word church, especially in the biblical text, it's talking about the ecclesia, which means the called out. It doesn't mean just a gathering, but it's specifically a called out. If they want to just say a gathering, there's a half a dozen different words in the Greek that you could put in there to say a gathering. But an ecclesia actually is the word called out. And what an ecclesia was at one time was that you have a government that becomes corrupt. And it's so corrupt that you can't seem to do anything about it. So you have an ecclesia where you call people out of the city, out of the government, willing to leave that government. I mean... to some degree, when the, uh, the the Israelites left Egypt, the entire body was an ecclesia. Except for they weren't really called out. <laughs> they were kicked out. The, whenever you see the word uh, ecclesia in reference in the Old Testament, you're talking about the ecclesia in the wilderness. Not the ecclesia that went to the wilderness, but the ecclesia that was in the wilderness. In other words, the called out in the wilderness. Well, who were called out in the wilderness? It wasn't Israel. 
It was the Levites, or it was people who would stand with the Lord and not follow the ways of the golden calf and the central bank and and all those kinds of things that they were trying to set up in order to bind the people together so that they'd all have one purse. They called out, and as a body, most of the ones who came out were of the Levite tribe. So now the whole tribe became this this body we we know as the Levites. And uh, and anybody could become a Levite. You could be of the tribe of Reuben and you could become a Levite. You just had to be adopted by a family of Levites. And then you could go into the ministry and under, you know, like an apprenticeship program <laughs> under the Levites. And you would become a Levite. Adoption was so common in Israel. I mean, it was one way to take care of the orphans of society. Even widows. You you could adopt your brother's wife if she she died, uh, or he died without her having one of his children. As a nearby relative, you were supposed to marry her and, and give her children. And the first child would belong to the brother that died or the relative that died. It wouldn't belong to you. It would belong to them. You would raise it. But it would be counted as inherit to receive the inheritance of the brother who died uh, without a child. And it wasn't something that you had to do, but it was something that was, it was a method to help deal with this inheritance, which everybody had in the land except the Levites. The Levites had no inheritance in the land. <laughs> they had land, but they didn't inherit it because they owned all things common. I mean, they they would live on land that would be Levite land, and they would have a right to that land. But if they sold it, any other Levite could come and redeem the land back because the Levites did not have an inheritable title to the land. Well, you don't have inheritable title to your land now. You only have a legal title. And uh, a legal title doesn't include the beneficial interest, which is the right to use the land. But that's a little bit different. That's because you went into bondage. The Levites went into bondage too, but they were in bondage to God of heaven. The God of heaven owned the beneficial interest of their land. The gods of the world own the beneficial interest of your land. (laughs) So it's a little different. But the principle is, is the same in law, in natural law. And this is really very important to understand about the church. The church is, needs to own land, but it's to own land belonging to Christ. Well, there are several processes to that. And one of them is that you have to be the church. You have to do all the other things that the church is required to do by Christ, which is feed my sheep. You have to be that You have to be the benefactors of the people in the church. But you can't be like the benefactors of other governments that exercise authority. The church has to be a benefactor that exercises charity. That it only can feed the poor with what is freely given it by the people. And then the grace of God will be both upon the church... And the people. 
And both the church and the people and congregation are ministers of God. The church, being the called out ecclesia, not the one in the wilderness, not the church in the wilderness, which was the Levites, but the church established by Jesus Christ, they both have the same mission. To serve God by serving the people. By helping the people love one another through an institution of God. Through a government of God. We call it the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is from generation to generation. Well, the ministers of the kingdom of God, the appointed ministers of the kingdom of God, were the Levites. And now is the church established by Christ. Is the church feeding the hungry, the needy of society? Are they doing it to the extent where nobody in their congregation has to go to men who call themselves benefactors to pick up the slack of the church? Today, the church is barely even picking up the slack of the ministers who exercise authority one over the other. And so, today, that church is not really the church. Because it's not doing what Jesus said. They're not doers of the word. They talk about Jesus. They try to get people to believe in Jesus and have an emotional experience in church, and the, which requires a lot of times a lot of music and, and uh, great uh, oracles who get up there and speak and stimulate uh, uh, you know, feelings in the people. Motivational speaker type ministers. You know, which is why guys like Olstein does so well. Because he can give you that good good feeling. He doesn't tell you what it means to be good, but he gives you the feeling that you're good. And that pays. That's a good business to be in if you want to make a lot of money. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, and loses his soul? Because he's actually a prophet of the beast. He's actually delivering everybody back into bondage of Egypt and making them feel so secure in the bondage of Egypt that they feel content to stay in Egypt because he makes them feel so good. So, that's not the mission of the church to make you feel good or make you feel like you're saved. The mission of the church is to tell you the truth. And the truth is, most of the modern Christians are not saved. Most of the modern Christians are not doing what Christ said. Most modern Christians are actually workers of iniquity. And are not really Christians. They're, that's why we use this modifier, modern Christians. So, why do I say all that? What does that have to do with the read? Well, Measure yourself. The, in, in that quote uh, that we see in Revelations 10.1, uh, it, it, it is a reference that we see in the mission statement where it says to measure the temple and his living altars and them that worship therein, which is what it says Revelation 11.1. 1. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel saying, Rise and measure the temple 
and the altar, and them that worship therein. You know, I I once was uh, doing a remodel of a church building, and I uh, had a guy working there, and uh, he was downstairs, and I was up in this up in the kind of loft going up towards the bell tower, and I was measuring what we needed to cut and put there. And I was yelling down the measurements to him. And then he would cut it. And then it would be passed up to me. And I would go to put it in place. And every board was too big. It wouldn't fit. And then I started measuring the boards that were being passed up. And they were all cut too big. And I said, you're cutting the boards too big. And so we passed the boards back down. And then he measures again, and he says, this is right on. Well, of course, I go down, and we, we pull out our tape measures. And the farther out you pulled the tape measure, the more off the measurement was. <laughs> his me- his He did not have a Stanley tape. He had, a, I don't know what it was, some off-brand. <laughs> anyway, the, the numbers were not written on there. They got progressively <laughs> bigger or shorter, I guess it was. Uh I don't remember, whatever. But anyway, the boards were coming out too long, which was good because then once we got got them a tape that matched our own, he was able to cut those boards. And when they passed him up, they worked. So it took us a little bit of time out of our, we thought we'd have it all done. <laughs> At least that part of it. But it, it, trying to figure out, no, you're still cutting them too big. <laughs> so anyway... We were able to cut them down. We didn't lose any wood and and get them up into place. Uh, That is because what he was measuring with, the reed he was using, was a different measuring device. It wasn't given to him by the same people who gave me my reed to measure with. And that's what's happening today is that all these churches are, are being given reeds but they're not given by God. They're given by men. And they're incorrect. And they don't measure things out right. So, how do you know whether my tape is right or the other tape is right? Well, mine said Stanley on it. <laughs> it didn't. So, that's one way of telling is that he had a different brand. But how do we know in the kingdom of God who has the measuring device? And so, anyway, I'm going to go through the mission statement. And uh, it may take a little bit into the next program to get through it. But we we want to look at it in context to find out. Uh, and then then we're going to take a look at the different, you know, the difference between the modern church and what the early church was doing. Because that's really going to be telling, too. Because they were appointed directly by Christ. They were trained by Christ. They received special instructions not included in the Bible. They t- talk about that. They said that you you tell them in parables, but, you know, why are you only telling them in parables? Because it's given unto them. It's given unto you to know, but not unto them to know certain things. So it's very clear that some explanations didn't get into the Bible. There's enough there. For everybody to figure it out. Because really, it even tells you in the Bible, the way you're going to figure this out is personal revelation. 
Blessed are you, Peter, because you know this, Simon Barjonas, because you know this, not because flesh and blood has revealed it to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it to you in your heart and in your mind. And that knowing is a rock. If you really are receiving the revelations of God, that is a rock. And that is what he's going to build his church on. That inner knowing. I can't give you that inner knowing. I can give you facts and information. I can chip away at the hard, scaly, clay uh, covering that is posing as true faith. And so, look, this don't match. You know, I had to go down to that guy, and we stretched out our tapes on a long board. And we looked at the numbers that they were reading, and you could see them progressively changing as you get farther and farther down the tapes, that his tape was not the same as mine. We made that comparison right there on that board, out there in front of the church, <laughs> as he was sawing outside. and And they didn't match up. And so we have to make that comparison. So that's why we talk about the early church. We show you historical records, not even a part of the church, about what the church was doing. Historical records that are in the Bible itself that is talking about what the Christians were doing and what the Christians would not do. And we see a commonality in in both the Old and the New Testament, where you had the church in the wilderness and the church appointed by Christ. Because he said, I was going to take it away from you and I'm going to give it to another group that would bear fruit. And if you're not bearing the fruit that we see the early church bearing, then we know it's not really the church established by Christ. So you can make the comparison yourself. You can, We can all go down and we can roll out these different measuring devices, these different reads, and you make the comparison yourself. And if it's in your heart to see, if the revelation of God will allow you to see, if you're willing to look at what you've been doing, what you are doing, then you may know what you should be doing. Because that willingness to see your error will let allow Christ to come in and fill the void you didn't know you had. Maybe you did know. Maybe you sense something is wrong. You look out in the church, you go to these other churches, and they just don't seem satisfying. Something's wrong. But are you willing to look at how you've been wrong? Because that is essential. It's easy to look at what everybody else is doing wrong. So you see how I'm tying everything together from the beginning of this, this broadcast uh, so that you can uh, start seeing these elements of the kingdom. So anyway, the mission starts out. The church is to continue in the perfect law of liberty, returning every man to his possessions and every man to his family. Doing good works in the observance of their common rituals and ceremonies, including, but not limited to, and then we have a colon. 
So now we have a list to look at. Now, that perfect law of liberty, there's now a live link there to our article on the perfect law of liberty because Paul mentions that. What is the perfect law of liberty? It certainly isn't force and control and exercising authority. It certainly isn't what the fathers of the earth and the men who call themselves benefactors do. And we show you over and over again in articles where Christ said you are not to be that way. So what we're going to have to look at is what are these rituals and ceremonies? What does that mean? What the things you just automatically do and the practices that you do? We're going to look at that and the list when we come back to the keys of the kingdom. So be there. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, so we're looking at this mission statement of the church and what it means and what it should mean to us so that we can measure whether or not we are really seeking to be a part of the church established by Jesus Christ or not. Because it's very clear that all these churches out here, the 40,000 different denominations, cannot be a part of the church. Because they're in such disagreement and disarray with each other and certainly not one body. <laughs> so, and so here, here's a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And uh, that seems to be a mission that is passed down in, in Revelations, at least in two places, is to figure out how to measure what is the church. And so we mentioned that they they have the same rituals and ceremonies, but when you say rituals and ceremonies, is it's kind of reeks of having vestments and incense and and reciting Latin prayers or what have you, and you know long processions and holding statues up in the air and lighting candles and and those are all rituals and ceremonies, right? Or rituals and ceremonies something more? Uh, if you go to our rituals and ceremonies, which is uh, which is now a live link on our mission statement there uh, at Preparing You. And you'll go to Article 7, Church Rituals and Ceremonies. And it talks about uh, there are two aspects of rituals, services and sacrifices in charity and love. So our charity, our practice of charity is one of our rituals. It, it's not, you know, it's like the Eucharist of Christ. We We say that the ritual of the Eucharist of Christ and the ceremony of the Eucharist of Christ is that some priest blesses a little wafer, a little crumb of bread, and he puts it on your tongue, and that's, we all practice that same ritual and ceremony. But the word rituals and ceremonies can actually mean giving out loaves of bread to people who are actually hungry. Then then we're not practicing the metaphor, we're practicing the meaning of the metaphor. If you're not 
if you're not actually feeding those that are hungry and in need in a way that strengthens them. I always apply that because otherwise you just become like Sodom and Gomorrah. They fed the hungry and the poor, but they did not strengthen them. Their, their feeding them actually made them weak. And we see that today in the world with welfare state uh, rampant in places like Detroit is destroyed Detroit. But anyway, rituals and ceremonies are uh, the simplest aspect of the outward manifestation of the church, but often the least understood. This is because attention is often focused upon the form of appearance uh, letting the spirit die. In other words, you put a wafer of bread on the person's tongue, but they go home hungry, unsatisfied. As with the law, it is not the letter that is important, but the spirit. These outward signs should be uniform to the point where the church may be visible, but never at the expense of the spirit. So, that goes back again to somebody who's got all kinds of good works and they feed all kinds of hungry people, but they really don't have the same spirit of Christ. So you have to be looking for the spirit. So there, you have to look more than just at the actual event itself, but the spirit that moved the event and other events have to also line up. And so that's, you know, like I said, when we started rolling out the tape measure at first, you could really see no difference between one inch and one inch and two inch and two inch. But by the time you got up to about 10 feet, you started noticing that the lines were slightly off. The, and by the time you got to 20 feet, you were a quarter inch off. <laughs> so it was when we started measuring the long boards that we started realizing that this tape measure, <laughs> and he asked uh, when we finally came to, the, we were just staring at it in almost disbelief. And he says, what, what do I do with this tape? Because I gave him another tape, and another 30-foot tape, and I gave it to him, and he says, what do I do with this old tape? I said, throw it away. <laughs> it's no good. It's useless. Except if you're going to measure one foot boards, then you could probably get away. <laughs> if you're going to measure long boards, that tape doesn't measure up. So anyway, you're going to have to decide what measures up. And this is what we're going to talk about. But anyway, those, that list of things I said in the last show. Overseeing the needs of the community of Christians, including the widows and orphans. Is your church taking care of... All the widows and orphans, not only in your church, but in a community of churches, a community of congregations, entirely through free will offerings and the perfect law of liberty. It's not? Well, your church doesn't measure up. Now, to tell you the truth, we don't measure up to that yet. We're still... The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. People have to come together in congregations. And the congregations have to minister to one another through the ministry of the church. For us to oversee that system of welfare based on faith, hope, and charity and that perfect law of liberty. You have to actually start being doers of the word. 
You you can't just say, oh yeah, I believe, dunk me in water and then I'm done. No, you have to actually walk the walk that Jesus was talking about. And then we can oversee that. And you oversee us. You know, I, I wrote an article and actually just linked to it on a couple of pages. Congregation of Rebuke. The congregation, we're all ministers to one another. The congregation should be pointing out if the minister doesn't do a good job. Helping keep him in line with what Christ said to do. The problem is right now that churches and congregations and home churches are not doing what the early church did. So anyway, let's look at number two so we can get through this and go on to a, a bigger comparison of the early church and the modern church. To serve and strengthen those that are weak, sick, or those not whole. This eternal life thing, which is the other question that came from New York, uh, that eternal life, life has to do with, if you look up that word life, which if you're reading our eternal life article, it's right there in the footnotes, it has to do with being whole. To be in possession of your God-given rights. And in order to do that, you have to be acting upon your God-given responsibilities. Well, each of us has a responsibility to love our neighbor. So, how much did you give to your neighbor? Now, of course, the guy next door, you may have helped him out a bunch of times. We do this all the time. I've been doing it for years. I used to help neighbors out all the time. Never expect anything in return. Sometimes... They give me a couple bales of hay. <laughs> Literally, uh, I would help them feed in the morning, and they'd let me take home some bales of hay, so I didn't have to buy it. Well, you know, over it was nothing to them, but to me, you know, if I fed every day for a hundred days, it'd be two hundred bales of hay. So, didn't feed my children, but fed the goats, and the goats fed the children. <laughs> so anyway. But eventually people saw this charitable stuff that we were doing all the time, helping people out, always being there. And then they gave us tractors. <laughs> that was a big deal. Give us a John Deere tractor. Uh, but there was no deal in it. They just chose to do that. You have to start giving for God to bless you. You have to start actually being a Christian. In the act of loving and serving and ministering to one another. Not just the ones next door. But the ones on the other side of the country. So that means your, your home churches have to come together. In order to wisely cast their bread upon the waters. And that's what ministers are supposed to be doing. Is helping people do that. Instead ministers are helping people get deluded. And deceived into thinking that they're already saved, even though they're not, they haven't repented. They're not thinking like Christ, who came to save the whole world, that they might be saved, willing to sacrifice himself. And other people are not even willing to sacrifice, you know, a couple dollars a day. You know, I mean, like I said a week or so ago, I mean, would you buy Jesus a cup of coffee every morning? Would you, does that seem like a big deal? You know, if you make it yourself, I mean, what's it going to cost you? A couple bucks? I mean, $60 a month. You know, if you buy them, you know, uh, 
Starbucks, it could cost you <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> a couple hundred dollars a month. <laughs> you know, but uh, whatever. Are you actually contributing to the kingdom of God? And that doesn't mean that you stop doing your daily charitable with your next door neighbor either. You may still have to do that. If you're going to walk in the character of Christ, immersed in his charity and sacrifice, you're going to make being a Christian a full-time job. You can't just think a thought and save yourself. This is not going to work. So you have to serve and strengthen. Again, that's where I point out yeah, your, your contributions have to be strengthening the poor. Have to be making them self-reliant. Stand on their own. Okay, the next item. To protect, to preserve, and to keep all things under the covering of the Messiah. Well, right now, most everything is under the covering of the state. You don't own your house. You don't own your car. That's why I wrote Covenants of the Gods. You don't own your children. The state does. So some people said, oh, I want to get rid of the birth certificate, you know, and I want to get a lawful title and land patent and all that stuff. No, what you want to do is get right with God. All, if you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else will fall into place. Everything else will come come about. You, you'll get your, you know, what, what do they say? What happens if you stop listening to country western music? Well, you get your wife back, your house back, and your dog back. (laughs) But if you start seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you'll get your rights back. Because that seeking means you have to take back your responsibilities. Not only to your wife and your children, but to your community and to the world, the whole world. You have to create that network of charity that operates by faith, hope, and charity and that perfect law of liberty. So you have to be a part of that protecting and preserving and keeping all things under the covering of the Messiah by actually doing what the Messiah said to do. Which is really what Moses said to do. (laughs) Love thy neighbor as thyself. Give drink to thy enemy. So why aren't why don't we have an international network of charity going? That's all we're talking about. Well, it starts at home. Individuals have to start giving. And then we'll start weeding out the ministers who are really serving and those ministers who are not. Next item. To officiate as a herald of the kingdom of heaven on earth. People, all these people who say the kingdom was postponed, that is ridiculous. That is absurd. The kingdom of God is from generation to generation. All of those Christians at Pentecost who got baptized opted out of the social welfare system of Herod and then eventually in Rome opted out of the social welfare system of Caesar, which was known as the imperial uh, cult of Rome, no longer went to the government temples for their free bread. But they went to church. They gathered together. And those that had shared with those that didn't have enough. They were doing this in Rome. They were doing it in Corinth. They were doing it in Galatia. They were doing it everywhere. 
where Christians gathered. They were living by faith, hope, and charity in the perfect law of liberty. And they were persecuted until in 250 A.D. they actually outlawed private religion, which was outlawing private welfare. Said you had to belong. We already see this happening today. You have to get Obamacare or we will fine you. Now, people think that's all changing. Maybe it will. Maybe there'll be a backlash. Who knows? We can see the direction of society is moving us. And they're, now they're struggling against us. Uh, your hope is in Christ. Are you doing... You know, the Amish were exempt from day one. They just they just wrote it right in. Amish don't even have to pay attention to this. They're not even a part of this. Why? Because they were actually doing what Christ said. At least to some degree. They were closer than any of you guys and they were just automatically exempt. You guys got your home church, but you're not doing what the Amish do. So you're not exempt. And you shouldn't be exempt. You should be under tribute. Because you've been slothful in the ways of Christ and you haven't been doing what Christ said to do. All we're doing is showing you legally how you can actually start doing what Christ said to do. How you can get not the exemption of Obamacare, but the exemption of Christ. And go under the covering of Christ. And take care of one another according to the ways of Christ. Well, you can't just do that in a home church. This doesn't work. You have to do that in a network of home churches. That actually care about the next home church as much as they care about their own. You know, I, I talk about this in the tribal incident. You go down to, uh, in places in Africa and stuff like this, and um, you have uh, tribes where they just take care of one another in that tribe. Nobody, they don't need government welfare. They they take care of their people in that tribe. Very Christian-like. But something's missing. There's a measurement tick that's off. And that is, if they're from another tribe, they might chop your head off. <laughs> Their tribe they take care of. Next tribe, they're the enemy. You push them off the sidewalk. You, you chop them with a machete. You don't help them at all because they're from the other tribe. It's, 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 you know, we talk about racism. Well, that's tribalism. Israel was supposed to treat the stranger in their midst justly. They were supposed to love their enemy as themselves. Give drink to their enemy, Moses says. That is, you know, I mean, when you're out on the battlefield, you may have to, you know, hack a few heads off, but generally speaking, they were not to be oppressing the stranger in their midst. Christ was saying the same thing. Love thy enemy. And you were not to oppress the stranger in your midst. You had to care about them. This is the sacrifice of the red heifer where you you are actually giving charity to the communities round about you. So, this same principle applies, but if you're just in this home church, you know, we're in our little home church and we go out and we go to a food kitchen once in a while or something like that. That's not kingdom. 
That's just loving those that love you. That's isolating you. It's not the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is where you own your possessions and you are a part of your family and nobody else owns your children and nobody else owns your land and nobody else owns your car, but that ain't where you're at. And you're not there because you've been slothful in the actual practices of the kingdom of God. You don't have somebody moving from Corinth to Galatia and Galatia to Ephesus taking funds to make sure that when they have a dearth that they are taken care of. When there was a fire and weed, we should have been able to coordinate every congregation to be there and help out. We we did something. We saw how valuable what little we were doing was, but we'd, as a drop in the bucket compared to what we could do and should do. Well, we can't do it unless we have congregations networking together. Caring about the next congregation, not just my tribe, but the next congregation as much as my own. So anyway, that's part of what we're doing today is officiating as the herald of the kingdom of heaven on earth. We're telling you how the kingdom of heaven on earth works. And we're telling you, because you have been slothful in the ways of the kingdom, you now don't own your land, you don't own your children. You know, uh, any any judge can put us under your, your marriage. They can actually, I've, I've seen where... The courts have actually come in and not allowed husbands and wives to meet or talk with each other. Both of them want to talk with each other. Both of them want to work out their differences. But the court won't let them communicate with one another. And because of that, they lost their home. They lost their ranch. Uh, put great stress upon the family because they went to the state and asked for help when something went awry. And now the state won't let them even talk to each other. They couldn't make, they couldn't forgive one another. They couldn't even communicate with one another. You think that doesn't happen? It happens all the time. So we need to be in communication with one another. And we, we don't want pastors who are possessive of their congregation who don't want their congregation talking to anybody else outside their congregation, you know, any other congregation or co connecting with any other congregation because it will undermine their position there. Ministers need to watch for that. Uh, another item. To appoint new ministers from those chosen of the people. And the Father. Well, now there's lots of different kinds of ministers. There's ministers of congregations of ten, and we explain that uh, that those to really be a minister of Christ, an ordained minister of Christ, which we're not going to have time to go through in in this short show, but we go through it and other things. There's certain things that a minister has to do. The the Levites had to do the same thing. They had no inheritance in the land. They owned all things common. We see a reference to Christians owning all things common, or at least believers. And, of course, that that's Paul talking about. He's talking about the ministers owning all things common. Because the prophecy is that he was to return every man to his possessions and every man to his family. That's not owning all things in common. It was the Levites who owned all things in common. It was the early church who owned all things in common. 
so that when you persecuted a bishop uh, in one city and took away his property, even before Constantine, the church was suing, you know, putting in a claim that that property belonged to it as a sovereign religion. That it was this sovereign group said that, wait a minute, that land that belonged, was held by that bishop, is belongs to the church, and you need to return it. And even under Diocletian, that land was being returned to the church before Constantine. Even under while there was still persecution going on. Because it was sacred, it was separate, it was holy. It belonged to a body that held all things in common. So even though you killed that bishop, that land had to go back. And the property had to go back. Why would the church want that back? Because it was the entire social welfare of Christians. And it needed those facilities to help take care of the Christians. And in in so doing, they brought grace upon their whole community. And so they took that chance and said, wait a minute, you, you, that belongs to the church. And they could do this from other countries. So that's, that's very important. That's how you, everything has to go back through Christ. And there's four ways to do that, and I'm not even going to tell you those. But first, the church has to be the church. It has to be doing what the church was told to do, the ecclesia was told to do. And it cannot do that unless the people gather together. But then, so I said, appoint ministers from those chosen by the people and the Father. Well, we see in Acts 6 that all of a sudden now, the people are already in congregation. It's Pentecost. That's one of the festivals where they made sure that they organized into the tens and and picked their ministers and their ministers picked their ministers because you can't do that to the whole network unless you all gathered together. Well, we can do it on phones now. <laughs> we could do it on the internet. But then you had to actually physically go to a feast and organize yourselves all the way up to the top, to the highest servant of servants of servants in a government of God where the people still had their own possessions and their own family and everything that was given to the government of God was given freely, free will offerings. Not just for the people in Corinth, not just for the people in Galatia, not just for the people in Poughkeepsie or Detroit or in L.A. or in Idaho or in, in New York, but are given in this body network of charity. People have to give. They have to care. They have to cast their bread upon the waters in order for it to come back to them in the form of grace that will give them both physical and spiritual salvation. But not only were those ministers important that were picked at Pentecost, there was these others in Acts 6 where seven were picked. And we've explained to you what that would correlate today. And it would allow us to move funds and materials and supplies all around the country when there was need. And there will be need. And even move people when it's necessary. 
But the people have to start caring about others. Don't expect God to care about you until you start caring about others. Now, he does care about you, which is why he has sent somebody to tell you what the church really looks like and what a false church looks like. So anyway, we'll we'll tell you more about those seven men elsewhere we already have and uh, what they should be doing and and how they could be implemented. But first you have to gather together. We'll, we'll tell you through the congregations. We won't tell you always on the groups or on the radio broadcasts. You have to gather together first. And then another one, to, uh, uh, to measure the temple of God. Now this is where we get to that, and we'll, we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. And his living altar, and them that worship therein. So what is worship? What is altar? What is the temple of God? We'll be back and tell you in a moment. Welcome back to uh, Keys of the Kingdom. So, what's the temple of God? You, you only find the phrase temple of God in the New Testament. You don't find it in the Old Testament. And uh, there's actually kind of an interesting thing about <laughs> that phrase temple of God because the word that's normally translated temple and temple of God, uh, or at least the first time is translated temple and temple of God, is Aaron temple, uh, sacred place or temple. And uh, and it's in Matthew twenty one twelve, But in Revelations 11, 1, it doesn't use that word for temple. It uses a different word for temple. That often is translated temple, but it's a, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a different word. It's uh, naos. Which uh, comes from a word that actually means to dwell. It's where God dwells. So where does God dwell? Does he dwell in dead stone temples? Or does he dwell in living temples? Well, you know, when we're reading that article, uh, that, that verse uh, in Revelations uh, 11, 1, we also see temple of God in Revelations eleven nineteen. Uh, when it talks about what's opened into heaven. And that's that's a second event. That's a second part of the process. But first you have to get to the first part of the process. <laughs> and and it talks about uh, giving me this reed and this rod. And the angel says, rise and measure the temple of God. Again, that temple of God is that worse verse, Naos. So who is... God dwelling in. How do you know who God is dwelling in? Well, by his fruits. 
by what he's doing. Is he giving like Christ gave? Christ was rich and he made himself poor. He gave so much he made himself poor. According to Paul, and according to common sense, considering the fact that his relatives were some of the richest people in, uh, you know, Joseph Arimathea was one of the richest people in the Roman Empire. And so we're supposed to believe that Jesus was this poor carpenter like they show in the movies. And they tell you in the churches that do not feed the widows and orphans and actually send you to the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other and actually have delivered the whole world back into bondage under kings and rulers instead of making every man king in his own castle and every man owner of his own possessions. False church and the daughters of such a church have led you back into the bondage of Egypt. So there's the fruits of the church you've been following and the churches you've been following. So your tape doesn't measure up to what Christ was doing. And so therefore now we want to find out where the temple of God is and is God living in that living temple. I mean, they, they say temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, I was actually just scanning through here. Uh, uh, the altar, the temple of God, is not made of dead stones. It's made of lively stones, living stones. And that's that's really important where we start understanding that the temple was never to be made out of dead stones. Otherwise, you might be looking over in Israel saying, well, when they build the temple and start the daily sacrifice, you start the daily sacrifice. You buy a cup of coffee a day for Jesus Christ. <laughs> and don't worry, I'm if you send it here, I'm not going to be buying coffee with it. Actually, we do buy a little coffee at especially at retreats, because so many of you guys still drink it. I don't drink coffee. <laughs> okay, So, I'm not going to be buying coffee for me. But we're supposed to be building that living temple of God where He can dwell in us. In order to do that, we have to make room for Him. In order to make room for Him, we have to set down, dump out some of the preconceived notions we have about what the church is and what the church is not. And we need to become those living altars. Now, you know, if you read our articles on altars, uh, which actually I don't even think I have that link right here in the mission, I'll have to do that. Uh, an altar was made out of stone. But the same word in the Hebrew for a gathering of stones is a gathering of men. I tell you that the altars of Abraham and Moses were always to be made of men who fit themselves together not by regulations, not by rules, not by chiseling away at their right to choose, but, but they choose to come together and become the altar of God. And then you'll see in them the fruit of God. Now, amongst many people who have become ministers, I believe that God was guiding them, leading them to the ministry, to be servants of God. They often found things in the modern church that made them feel uncomfortable, but they didn't know, you know, that guy down there measuring with that tape. He thought his tape was true. 
And he was he was trying to make his marks and cut his cuts according to that true tape. And and I had a different tape, and my marks were different. And so he was being faithful and cutting according to the measurements I was giving him. But the tape he was using was not the same as the tape I'm using. And we had to come into agreement about which tape. I mean, if he had another copy, another of his tape, we probably could have used that. And we would have come out with good cuts. As long as they matched up. But he didn't have another one of those tapes. But I had a Stanley tape. <laughs> and uh, so we both, when we both started using the same tape, our cuts started coming out okay. And we could work together. And and that's what we need. We need to all have that same measuring device. If your congregation, you got people in your congregation dependent upon Social Security, welfare, unemployment. Unemployment's a little bit different, but certainly anything that's coming from government is coming from a broke institution now. So it's all part of the same uh, stumbling block. But if they're dependent on that, they have need for repentance. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, stop taking your Social Security check. No, it means turn around and start seeking an alternative to Social Security. Start seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Start doing it the way the early church did it. Taking care of one another in righteousness and according to the ways of Christ. So that's... We we need ministers. We need congregations. We need congregations that come together. We need congregations that give regularly and and according to the ways of the early church. And then we need to be able to measure who is really doing that. Are they coming together because they want out of the system? Or are they coming together because they love one another? There's there's a little check mark that you're measuring by. Uh. Are the altars gathering together because they are charitable men who seek to walk in the ways of charity like Christ and love and faith? Worshiping doesn't have to do with praising God. It has to do with doing His will. Not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do with the will of the Father. To worship means to gather together and serve God by serving one another, by taking care of one another. And if we were really doing that, like the Amish, we would be exempt from health care. Like the Amish, many of the Amish, we would not need Social Security. We would be getting on planes and trains with church ID only. Because we would actually, people want, well, how do I get one of your church IDs? What, if I join a congregation, do I get it? No, you haven't joined a congregation. It's not an entity. You do it by seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, giving regularly, taking care of one another regularly, and your ministers are the communication. Where is there a need, a true need? How are we filling that need? Are we strengthening the poor? It's a government of the people, for the people, by the people, and it requires everybody to be responsible. Let God sort us out. So, it says to reprove, rebuke, exhort, Bind loose by testimony and witness. 
I wrote an article, uh, Congregations of Rebuke. It, it's not the minister who should be rebuking the slothfulness of the congregation all the time, but the congregation itself should rebuke the minister if he is not measuring up to his job in the kingdom. That's why when somebody seemed to be critical on an email yesterday, I wrote back and says, what do you mean? And he, he, he can't seem to come up with an answer as to what Because he <laughs> he's not really rebuking anything specific. He's just being ad hominem in his approach to things. Because he himself is falling short. So he has to point out or at least accuse others of falling short. But we should be rebuking one another in love. As many as I love, I also rebuke. And that requires teamwork. That requires communication. Somebody was complaining about the fact that nobody has called them lately. Yet, there's weekly calls that he should be on and he hasn't bothered to show up. Or hasn't fixed his clock enough. We see him sometimes show up at different times. Why isn't he showing up on the call? with all the others who are trying to do the job that he is. That's the loop. Especially when we're, we live far apart. That's the loop where we are going to each take the time to connect with the other. Every phone call that we have between us when we're spread out like this is a free assembly. It doesn't have to say have a name, but it's a free assembly. And then it's what you do, the witness. Not just your testimony, but your witness, what you do, that is confessing your faith. It is telling us your actions are speaking louder than your words. Are you actually contributing? Are you actually free will offering, letting your offering go, but yet being careful to make sure that the minister you've entrusted with it is actually doing a good job? And we have people here looking down and we want you as congregants looking up at the minister and seeing if he is doing because there is an up and down in the kingdom there is the highest amongst you is to be servant to all we are not creating offices of power we're creating offices of service so we're looking for men who want to serve a people who want to serve one another it's all about service it's not about power it is an anarchy because it has no archy over, of men over men. But it has men who love one another. And love requires charity and charity is sacrifice. And then we will be a living temple where the daily sacrifice has begun. You don't look for a dead stone temple where people are killing cows. And she, you look for a living temple where people are daily sacrificed, buying that cup of coffee a day for Christ. That's what you need. And it will change the paradigm of your life and the lives of one another. And the last thing is to preach and to publish and to serve the people who seek the kingdom of God at hand, which is really what I just said. Are you seeking the kingdom of God at hand and His righteousness? And then, 
preach and publish. That's why I wrote the mission. That's preaching and publishing. But also, it's why we have birth certificates and, you know, marriage certificate. You get a marriage certificate, we stamp it, we seal it, and it's a document, a piece of paper, a prima facie evidence to the world that you're married. But what happens if you die? And, you know, who gets your stuff? Who takes care of your children? Every time you have a child, you should fill out another uh, testimony. That if this child, if I die or become incapacitated, I want these people over here to take care of this child. And if they're not available, I want the church to pick who's going to take care of this child. Why do you fill out a document like that and sign it with witnesses? So that the state doesn't come in and take your child. All your underage children could be taken away in a minute. I don't care if the, you know, you take your of age children and you put them on the document. But who do you want to take care of your children if you are incapacitated? That's just one thing. What about your stuff? I mean, your possessions and your family, you're responsible for it. You can just let the government figure out what to do with everything after you die or pass away. Or you can make provisions. That's being the government of God. That's being the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And you form a congregation to back up that testimony because you make that testimony in front of other people. This is why you have two witnesses for every marriage. You should have two witnesses for all of your testimony. And you should be there to be a witness for the testimony of your neighbor. What happens if he dies? Who gets his kids? Who's going to take care of his wife, his widow and orphans? So you gather together to be there for him so that he will gather with you to be there for you. What happens if there's a fire that comes through your local congregation and wipes out house after house after house like we saw in Weed? We showed up with a van full of food just as they were running out at the local church there. We could have done way more if we were already together and already uniting as a network of congregations of congregations of congregations. If you had 100,000 people out there in uh, 10,000 congregations all linked together, and there was a major disaster. You could take care of the disaster with everybody just buying one more cup of coffee today. <laughs> that would be it. And we could we could help everybody in that major disaster. Well, there's going to be a major, major disaster, which is why you have to pick the seven, which I'm not going to tell you about today. <laughs> But the the seven may be important for it says in in the Old Testament to pick a seven as well, and it's because you don't know what calamity may occur. <laughs> well, calamities will occur, and you haven't even picked the ten, much less the seven. You haven't gathered together in a network of faith, hope, and charity. You're just out there getting your feelings in your local churches. It feels good. We love one another in our little congregation. That's not kingdom. Kingdom, you have to love people you don't even know. 
or don't know you. Which takes us back to the old red button story where, or parable where you push the button, somebody somewhere will die that you absolutely do not know, but you'll get a million bucks. And the people decide to push the button and immediately the guy shows up to collect a little box with the red button on it and give him a check for a million bucks. And they wonder where, where you're going to take the box and we're going to give it to somebody that absolutely you do not know or does not know you. And then if they push the red buttons, assumedly, <laughs> and they don't tell you, you got to put it together, you die. And you never get to cash your check. But the kingdom of heaven is just in reverse. You lay down your life and you'll pick up your life more abundant. You know, I, I just watched, somebody gave me some videos to watch because we don't have TV out here and, and I've, it, it took, it's taken me months and months to get videos. But, because uh, uh, I don't have much time for TV. But it was uh, called The Event. And one of the themes in there was constantly are people who are willing to sacrifice somebody else to save their people. They're willing that somebody else had to be destroyed to save their people. And that one person finally redeemed themselves because they risked their life to save other people. <laughs> and now they, they felt redeemed. But somehow or other, you think you're redeemed because you like Jesus. <laughs> no, you have to lay down your life. And that may start with one cup of coffee a day. <laughs> you can't afford a cup of coffee for Jesus? Don't drink one yourself. <laughs> Fast from your cup and buy Jesus a cup. The principle is that you have to start thinking about other people. Loving other people. Care, laying down your life so that others may live. And you have to do it wisely. You can't just hand ten bucks out the window to a guy with a sign on the street. That's foolishness. You know, but when you start seeing the fact that you have been neglecting the ways of the kingdom, then you can start turning around. So I never really got into it. Maybe I'll do it in this afternoon show, but... Uh, uh, you know, what's this thing, the early church? And what are the comparisons? And, and we go down a big long list. You know, the modern church practices a redefined religion. Thinking religion is what they think about God. But the early Christians practiced pure religion, which was the the pious performance of their duty to God and their fellow man. They actually were taking care of one another in a social welfare system entirely funded by free will offerings and refused to take any social welfare from the pagan temples, which were running a system much like your Social Security, Obamacare, welfare, and all these, Medicare, Medicaid, those are all run out of your modern temples. Those are your temples. Those are your ministers. They're ministering to you. But they are the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. The modern Christian depends upon those civil ministers who call themselves benefactors, but compel the contributions of the people. The early Christians depended upon ministers of charity operating in a network of love. Same word love, same word charity. Modern Christians depend on men 
who exercise authority for their welfare. Early Christians provided another type of social welfare through charity and hope. Modern Christians seek benefits that are provided by the world through the exercise of force that is established by force. The early Christians only received benefits that are unspotted by the world, not dependent upon the constitutional orders and systems of governments, but dependent upon the government of God, which was operating according to the perfect law of liberty. Modern Christians eat at the table of kings of the world and the fathers of the earth with great appetite. They don't put a knife to their throat. They eat his dainties. They consume them. And they're not even seeking a table set by God. The early Christians set a table of the Lord with charity and hope, loving one another in a network kingdom of love. What are you doing? Would you even buy the coffee for the king's table? (laughs) Or Christ's table? I mean, are you like the rich man who gives half of everything? I mean, I don't care who you give it to. I mean, God does. You have to decide that. How do you measure who you should give it to? Who is really promoting the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Modern Christians think that they are the children of God because they say they love Christ. The early Christians were brethren of Christ because they were doers of the will of the Father. They were actually taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. Modern Christians think that they are are forgiven because they say they believe in God and say they love Christ. Early Christians knew Jesus died that they might be saved and they are only forgiven if they forgive others. But anyway, we can go on like this all day long. The list just goes on, but we're out of time. So until then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.